Today we're jumping into the book of Daniel and we're going to stay there for three months because it's that good. I think there's such good stuff we can get out of this book for right now where we are as Christians in America. So go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles and I hope you got one to the book of Daniel. Mark it because we're going to use Daniel from now till early May. Get it marked. But here's what I'm going to do today that's a little different but I think it's, it's important. You go ahead and find Daniel, but before I read our passage today, I want to give you some background on the book of Daniel that I think will help us get more out of it in the weeks ahead. And I want to give credit where credit is due. I took this title, Thriving in Babylon, from my pastor friend Larry Osborne, who did a series and wrote a book of the same title, Thriving in Babylon. We've got copies of it in our resource center It will go great with this series. So if you want something else to be reading along these same lines, I encourage you to grab a copy of that by Larry Osborne, Thriving in Babylon. Also, my friend Jeremy White did a great series through the book of Daniel a few years ago and made some really helpful application uh, that I'm using some of that as well. So I'm grateful to both those men for the work that they've done that will help us in what God might do among us. Here's the first thing I want you to get before we dive into this book. Number one. The book of Daniel is first and foremost about God and his sovereign rule over all of history. Don't make a mistake. I know there's books of the Bible. Many of them are named after a human being. I know the title of the book's Daniel. I know the human author is Daniel, but don't make a mistake. The main character in the book of Daniel from beginning to end is God. Not Daniel, not Nebuchadnezzar, not Daniel's three friends, not Darius, not Cyrus, or any other human ruler. God. So as we go through this, you want to be looking more for what is God doing than what any human ruler chooses to do. It is about God. Number two. Number two. The book of Daniel is very practical for the world we're living in today. It's very timely and practical. I know it's Old Testament. I know it happened a long time ago in a different culture, but oh my goodness, people are people. And our fallen, broken world is our fallen, broken world. They may have been in chariots and horses and we're in cars, but some of the same struggles are the same struggles and some of the same heart issues and some of the same fears. There's some tremendous practical application from the book of Daniel for the world we're living in today. So today I wanna highlight two. I just wanna highlight two of what I think are the biggest takeaways for the book of Daniel for where we are today as Christians. Because here's what I see. Too many Christians don't get these two takeaways I'm gonna highlight today. And when you don't get these two takeaways I'm gonna highlight from Daniel, it's not like, oh well, whatever, not whatever. You will lose heart you will lose sleep, you will lose perspective, and you will become a very angry Christian who struggles to love other people and live for the glory of God. It matters what you think. It matters these takeaways. Here's the first. Don't let your joy or hope ever ride, ever ride on any political leader because they are always coming, look at me, and going. Coming and going, coming and go. Somehow human beings tend to forget this. They come, they go, often much more quickly than you would ever imagine. They come, they go, they come, they go. Read history, read your Bible. 
They just keep coming and then just keep going. And God keeps doing what God intended to do. Fix your eyes on God. Don't put your hope in any political leader. Probably nobody in this room would be surprised if I were to say to you that I believe this last presidential election was one of the most divisive, hostile of any that I've seen in my lifetime. I mean, it's always a mess. People always lie. There's always mudslinging. This is what it is. But oh my goodness, this was on a whole new level. And the fact that we still have this level of rhetoric and hostility churning between both camps is also, I believe, at an all-time high. It's almost like nobody has settled down yet. Why? Let me tell you why. Because people, including far too many Christians, have put far too much of their hope in political leaders as if they're the Messiah, as if they are the biggest change agent, as if they are our only hope to see whatever you hope America would look like, whatever you hope your life would be like, whatever, oh, we got too many people thinking it all rides on a political leader. And Daniel can remind us, a book like Daniel can remind us, oh, but it doesn't, oh, but it doesn't. Please know my comments are not today, are not intended to drive you away from or towards any political party. We got all kinds of differences, I know we do, and I'm glad, just like we have some people that speak in tongues, yeah, does that shock you, yeah. And some that don't, some that drink in moderation, some that don't, some that go to movies, R-rated, and some that don't. I mean, we could go down the list, guess what? There's some Democrats sitting with some Republicans, ah! And independents, oh my. All right here, and guess what? That's how it should be. So the world sees there's something bigger and greater and more important that draws us together than a political party or use of alcohol or school choice. Or Don't put your hope. So I'm not trying to drive you away from or towards any political party, but here's what I am doing. If you're sitting here and you're a Christian, here's what I want you to get. We... Of all people, Christians in America today, with this level of churning and unrest and hostility and mudslinging, we should be the ones that still sleep good. How are you sleeping? You're not sleeping since the election? Not good. Not a good statement about your Christianity. We should be the ones that still sleep Good, and we should not be the ones that are found at the center of all this mudslinging, name calling, hate mongering, caricaturing. When I see Christians online saying things like, Well, I hope you just burn in hell forever, you know you're going to go to hell and burn. No, I'm ready for you to start living and talking like a Christian. No Christian should ever tell someone, you know you're going to hell. I hope you go to hell. I know you're going to. Oh, my goodness. Because here's what's driving. Let me help you out here if you're wondering, how did things get this divisive, this polarized, this heightened, this? I'll tell you how. You know what's driving almost all of this? Fear. If we played a word association game and I said, I say a Bible word, you tell me the opposite in the Bible. Fear. What's the Bible say the opposite of fear is? Some of you got it. It's not courage. It's love. 
And so many times we're driven by fear. Oh my goodness, what's gonna happen next? Oh my goodness, it won't go our way. Oh my goodness, the things I wanna see happen can't happen. We're afraid. When you're afraid, you start hating. You start slinging. You start getting ugly. You pull off the gloves. You think anything, you can do anything now because oh, fear is one of the worst things that can happen to a human being, especially a Christian. Because here's what the Bible teaches. This is bonus. You're gonna wanna write this down. 1 John 4, 18. It's not in your outline. 1 John 4, 18. Perfect, say it, cast out fear. Perfect doesn't mean sinless. Guess what that word, it's telos in the Greek. It means grown up, robust, mature, real love, cast out fear. Because see, think about it. What does fear do? When you're gripped with fear, you pull back. You hunker down, you protect, and you lash out at anything that you think is a threat. Love keeps you leaning in, opening up, risking, serving, sacrificing. Who's that sound like? Jesus. We're supposed to be like Jesus. Where the world would, you know what you do? When you go down the path of hate, slander, name calling, you step right into what the world already says about us. You're haters. You're haters. You're judgmental. You're ha- we shouldn't see Christians with placards on the street screaming. Problem? You don't have to do that today. What I see is Christians on social media that think just because it's through a keyboard and you're not looking at a real person, it's okay to say ugly, hateful, venomous things. News alert. It is not. It is not. There should be love coming through the keyboard as much as face-to-face. Don't fall into the trap because you're not looking at a real person. And, you know, and, and, and the name of this person just Big Dog. Don't say ugly things to Big Dog. Big Dog might be a woman. I don't know. But they have a name, and they're a human being created in the image of God. And so you be careful and you be a testimony to our Lord Jesus Christ in how you dialogue with Big Dog, whether it's through media or whether it's face-to-face. Because what did Jesus say? They'll know you are my disciples by your political allegiance with conservatism and by the way you scream and carry on over anything. No, no. They'll know you're my disciples by your... Oh, say it again. And perfect love casts out what? They can't figure it out. You will disarm them and you will dismantle the very straw man that they've set up that we're haters and that we're judgmental and that we don't love human beings and care about them when you go hate. When you love and they know you don't agree and you love them anyway, they don't know what to do with that. That's what makes us radical, peculiar. Don't hear me saying lay aside your opinions. I have an opinion. I want you to keep your opinions, I, it matters. I wanna engage the culture. Don't hear me saying don't vote. I voted, I'm gonna keep voting as long as I'm an American, I'm allowed to. But folks, at the end of the day, I lay all down my political preferences and opinions and I am to love and I am to sleep well and I am to come across in a warm dialogue, not a mudslinging, hate-mongering, name-calling interaction. That'll make a stand, because do you see what's happening in our culture? I mean, it is just getting more hostile, more hostile, more hostile. 
we should be the ones that don't get caught up in that and people can't figure out what to do with us. Whether you're way over here on this side, they say, but they're still kind to me. Way over here on this side, they still treat me equally kind. They don't take sides as far as how they treat people. Yeah, that'll get the world's attention. Love, love, love. You say, Brad, why? Why why can I do that? I'll tell you why, and you shouldn't have forgotten this. Because our hope is fixed on someone outside of this world who, who, who reigns with unlimited terms, who can't be voted in or out, who doesn't need the backing of Congress or Senate or the Speaker of the House to do anything he wants to do in America or anywhere else in this world. Our God reigns. Be a good place for an amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Let's just take a collective deep breath. Doesn't that feel good? Settle down. Settle down. Now I hope because you're already in this wonderful church that you already weren't the worst. But our church family is big enough that I suspect there's some of you without realizing you've been sucked down this path. Friends, our hope never has been and never will be in any political leader. Leaders come and leaders say it. Go. And God continues to reign. He's not on plan. Hey, if you didn't like Obama, he didn't screw up God's plan for America by his eight years in office. Good news. If you don't like President Trump, he can't screw it up either, regardless of dumb tweets. He can't screw it up. I know he looks like he could. He can't. He can't. Nobody is bumping God off plan A and God's saying, oh, dear me. And he rallies the, I was going to say he rallies his counselors, but he has none. He rallies himself. And he says, what am I going to do now? He's never had a moment like that. Ever. 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 Don't put your hope. Don't put your hope and joy in any political leaders. Continue to rest and trust in God. Here's the second takeaway that we're going to see over and over in the book of Daniel. Don't keep expecting to be treated well in this world because you're not home yet. Now, if you're in our church family, you're like, oh, Brad, you say that so much. I say to you, I thump that a lot because the Bible thumps that a lot. And the Bible thumps it a lot because I think we forget it a lot. It's not like, oh, it's not like the Holy Spirit needed a better editor. It's there, this, this reminder, you're not home. You're not home, you're not home. You're exiles, you're aliens, you're strangers, you're pilgrims, you're foreigners. Everything about the Bible and the way it refers to us indicates you're just passing through. It's not home, it's not home. And I think he comes at it relentlessly because we forget it repeatedly. And we keep trying to make this home. And we keep wondering, Why am I not treated better? Why don't I feel more accepted and loved and respected by people around me? You're not home. You're not home. And so a book like Daniel can be very helpful because it was written when the people of God were in exile in a strange land with foreigners. They had been overrun by another country and hauled off. So stay with me. I know you're thinking, but this is still America. I'm I'm in America. Here's what's going on, folks. 
Rome crumbled and fell from within. Rome was not conquered from without. And America has changed dramatically, has it not? Could we not agree on that? At a breathtaking pace, there's a different tone, a different value system, and we're so used to, here's the problem, I think Americans have had it so good for so long in America, and we're so accustomed to such freedoms, and we're so accustomed to actually, actually being favorable with the culture that we think something strange is happening now. Let me help you. Don't hear me saying I I like it. Don't hear me saying I don't get scared. I do too. I have kids. I hope I'm going to have grandkids. Hello. Soon. (laughs) But I digress. Yeah, I have moments like, oh. But folks, we're the ones. We're the ones that should recognize it's not home. It's going to feel It's supposed to feel strange. You're supposed to feel uncomfortable to some degree at the cookout in the neighborhood. You're supposed to feel to some degree uncomfortable at the the work office party deal. I don't want you to stop going. I want you to be there and recognize when you feel a little odd and out of place, perfect. If you're sitting here thinking, I always feel great. Not good. (laughs) Not good. But we're supposed to be there. And it's like, oh, I mean... It's just changed, and here's the deal. America is just catching up with what has been normal for most Christians all over the world for centuries now. So stop acting like something strange has happened. So many other Christians have never known anyone from their fold holding up office of power. They've never known great freedoms. They've never known favor with their culture. And if you look at church history, that's not been the exception. That's been the norm. The norm, the norm. America is catching up with normal. And so here's what I would also suggest. You can disagree. This whole take back America, I think you need to get over that. We're not taking back America. America, and our calling isn't to take back America. Our calling is to be salt and light in the midst of whatever America is like and be radically different and be Jesus, be Jesus, be Jesus, be Jesus far more than we're gonna take back this or take back that. Live for Jesus. Live for Jesus. Be filled with love. Over. You want a good place to look at? Romans 12, 10 to 21 overcome evil with the same kind of mudslinging, name-calling, caricatural, I hope you burn in hell. Now, overcome evil with what? If your enemy hungers, kick him in the teeth. No, what? If he thirsts, I mean, that's what gets their attention. What? Why would you do this? He says repeatedly, love your Christians who are just like you, love your enemies. Do good to those that despise you. Luke chapter six, I'm in now. I mean, it's like these places are all over to help us know how to live in a day like today. God saw it coming. It's not like, oh my goodness, the Bible only works for when we were the moral majority and we're walking around Liberty Mountain and I'm gonna buy a brick. What are we gonna do now? Oh, we're gonna read the rest of our Bible where he says, love your enemies, do good to those that despise you and use you hatefully, bless them, bless and curse not. Wow, as if he knew we would have a day like this 
and we need to know what to do. Jesus. Jesus in John 15 came straight out and said it. John 15, 18 to 20. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you, if you were of the world, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you are not of this world, but I've chosen you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. What he's doing? Is Jesus our master? Do we call him Lord? He's saying, if I suffered, I'm the master, you're the servant. Why do you think you're gonna be treated any better? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But here's what I truly believe. Don't keep wishing for beaver cleaver back in the 50s when you couldn't hardly even tell a difference between a Christian family and just a normal American family because everybody taught their kids not to cuss. Everybody taught their kids not to have sex. Everybody taught their kids not to steal. Everybody taught their kids not to lie. It was just American. You could hardly figure out who knows Jesus. Guess what? Yes, this is a scary day. Yes, this is a harder time. But it's also a great time to be a Christian because when you don't lie, when you don't compromise, when you don't steal, when you don't use foul language and come against people, you will actually look really different. And they just might say, why? And then 1 Peter 3.15 becomes a very real moment. Be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they revile you, as evildoers, evil those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. This is actually a great day to be a Christian and to live for Jesus. The book of Daniel is gonna show us not just how to survive, but how to thrive in the midst of a pagan culture. Number three, the book of Daniel is filled with prophecy that can feed your faith. I need my faith to be fed. Reading God's word feeds my faith. But oh my goodness, seeing prophecy. The Bible is filled with prophecy and the book of Daniel has some of my favorite. Oh, it is so good because on the world stage of history, so much of it has been already fulfilled with pinpoint accuracy. Pinpoint accuracy. So much of the prophecy in the Bible has already been fulfilled. There's a little bit, notice how I said that, there's a little bit that is yet to be fulfilled. Here's what this does for me. When you read your Bible and you see, oh, he said this was gonna happen. Did. He says, this is going to happen. Done. He says, this will then happen. Done. And this will happen. Done. And this is going to happen. Guess where we're living? Right about here. There's not much left. And everything God already said. Prophecy is nothing more than God telling us about history before it happens. It is so much has already happened. And here's where we live. That will feed your faith. He said this, and it's happened. He said, this is gonna happen. It will, it will. I don't wonder, am I an idiot for believing the Bible? Am I an idiot for being a Christian? Am I, oh no, you read this. Daniel chapter two and chapter seven are two of my favorite places about prophecy in the book of Daniel, and we'll get there in this series. And it's where he talks about four successive empires that God will raise up 
and then bring down, starting with Babylon, and then Medo-Persia, and then the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great, and then the Roman Empire that was in power during the time of Jesus. All has happened just like he said. That'll feed your faith to know that God's word is true. Finally, number four, book of Daniel has some very personal application that we better get a hold of as Christians today. Book of Daniel is not just some ancient, you know, some ancient fairy tale about mythological characters in a faraway land somewhere that you can read to your kids, your young kids at night as a little story. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Yeah, I know it's a different culture. Folks, what you have in the book of Daniel is you have a real child of God and three of his closest friends exercising faith and commitment to still live for the one true living God in the midst of exile in Babylon, surrounded by a pagan culture. We're gonna get into it, but this was not easy. They were drugged from their homeland. Everything's foreign, everything's different. They were castrated. We'll talk about that in more detail with a slideshow. No, not really. (laughs) I mean, humiliating. And then they were trained for three years in secular, pagan ideologies. And then they they weren't just put in a prison camp. They served in the administration. Daniel served in the administration of four pagan rulers without ever compromising. Wow. What's the takeaway? As Christians, can we live in a very foreign, pagan culture and still actually be used by God? Yeah, I think so. That's what you see in Daniel. That's what I want to see happen with me. That's what I want to see happen with you. So now, I know that's a lot of background, more than I usually do, but I hope it's gotten you even more excited about digging into Daniel. So now I want to ask you to stand as I read our passage today. Stand on your feet, bring your Bible with you. I'm going to read our passage and then I'm going to make some comments about our passage. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried off into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God, the word of the Lord, and all God's people said, you may be seated. Now I want you to look at verse two again, because I think you'll see something that we can personally apply to our situation here in America that some of you need reminded of. Verse two, and the Lord, if you have the New King James, what's the word? You might have delivered. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, that's the people of God, into his hand. Here's the real question. Into whose hand did God give Jehoiakim? Look back in verse one. Whose hand? What? What do we know about Nebuchadnezzar? Good guy, bad guy. Really bad. Wicked, righteous. 
God-fearing or arrogant and full of himself? Why would God do that? See, we've got too many Christians that have a theology that when someone's in power that looks a lot like biblical precepts and we think, oh, there's God at work. And when someone's not, we're like, oh, that's Satan getting the upper hand. And, oh, here's what the Bible teaches, my friend. Nobody is in a position of power unless the Lord gives it to them. That'll help you sleep good. You don't have to like who they are. And the Bible does not teach that even God is pleased with everything they do. God is not the author of sin. But oh my goodness, he's sovereign over good and bad. He's sovereign over righteous and evil. And he gives power to people. Here's what I really like. As I read the Bible, how much of the Bible do I read every year? Oh, here's what you'll see. As you go through big books like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, when you see God talking about people like Nebuchadnezzar, bad, wicked, arrogant, there's a pronoun that you see all the time. He'll say what Nebuchadnezzar's about to do because he's determined it to be done, and he'll say, Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. Yeah, every single man or woman alive that rules, that has power, is a servant of Almighty God. Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. It was not Nebuchadnezzar's military power. It was not his brilliant political that brought down Jerusalem. It was that God gave them into his hand and when he's done with Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar he will just bring them down to dust and he will raise up Cyrus of Medo-Persia and when God and oh it's so exciting you'll see where he predicts years before Cyrus is in place that Cyrus would be the one to send the Jews back to their land God is in control you guys God rules God reigns God is accomplishing his purposes and plan over all of history. That's what the Bible teaches. Sovereign. See, Daniel understood something that we need to get a hold of if we're gonna settle down, have courage, have joy, have love instead of hate. Here's what he understood. God is in control of who is in control, even if they're wicked. Now, don't hear me saying I just explained everything to you because you might say, but why would God let someone wicked do these awful things? Are the awful things they do really awful things? Yes. But it still should help you sleep good and say, Lord, I'll leave it with you what you're doing. But at least I know you are doing something. This is not random. This is not out of control. This is not meaningless. This is not history going off the rails. This is not we should have got out the vote. This is not, 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 not. We make way too much of us and far too little of God. And as we head into darker days and more and more America becomes Babylon, we better get a hold of this. God rules, God reigns. He's always had a people, he's always had a remnant. God delight, see we're so used to being, we wanna be majority. Folks, what does the Bible teach? God is most pleased to work through minority and weakness. He told Gideon to send hundreds of men home, right? 
These could be some of the best days ever for the church of Jesus Christ. The times that political powers have been in alignment with us, quite honestly, folks, have not been the best days for the church. Weakness, minority, remnant. God says, in your weakness, I'll make my power manifest, known. God's not concerned. God's on track. God is ruling and reigning. No one can stop it. The Bible teaches the sovereignty of God from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. It is all through the Bible. Start to finish. This is not some little, you know, just side issue that you find in marginal notes. It is all through the Bible. And so here's what this means. Every experience that you and I go through. So let's push it. It's not just that he's sovereign over nations. It's not just that he's sovereign over political powers. He's sovereign over everything that's happening in your life and my life. He calls us by name. He knows us. And so what it means is every experience that you go through, good and bad, from the apparently mundane or what looks like coincidental into the spectrum, all the way over to what looks like, and often it looks like, intentional, determined acts of wicked men and women against you all lie under the sovereignty of God. Nothing can come into your life that doesn't come through his hands first. Father filtered. Sovereign. Now, now the struggle that we have is sometimes we think, oh, if God was sovereign over, does that mean it wasn't wrong that they did it? And it's gonna be, well, that, that had to happen because God, no. That's the beauty of what the Bible teaches. It's a theological term called concurrence. God is sovereign and people are not puppets. It's not like, oh, they had to do that. No, they do what they choose to do and they're liable, they're culpable, they're, res they're responsible, they're guilty. And yet God is sovereign at the same time. That's what the Bible teaches. Here's how, here's how I want to show you this. Never mind what you're thinking of right now in your own life. And I imagine in a group this size, some of you are thinking some awful things. So my heart goes out to you. It really does. What is the most wicked act that has ever been perpetrated against any human being who's ever walked this earth? The crucifixion and brutal murder of Jesus Christ. The only innocent man that ever lived. And yet, I want you to look at how the Bible talks about that event. Go to Acts chapter two. Acts chapter two. Beginning in verse 22, this is Peter standing on the day of Pentecost. Jesus has died, rose again, ascended back to heaven from the Mount of Olives, left his believers, and he said, hey, the, the, the paraclete, the one called alongside, the Holy Spirit's gonna come. I gotta go away, but I'm sending a helper, the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is blown up now with these early believers, and the whole city's thinking, what is going on? And Peter stands to preach, and he says this. Verse 22, Acts 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, 
you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up and loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Death could not keep him down. But look at what Peter's saying. It happened according to the determined counsel and plan of God. And yet the people who did it are still responsible. You, he doesn't say, never mind, it had to happen, God made you do it, nope. You have taken with lawless hands. Real people make real choices that are real wicked often, and yet God is sovereign and works it for his purpose. Jump over to Acts 4. There's another passage that speaks the same way. Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. Peter and John have just been beaten with rods for proclaiming Jesus Christ and the resurrection, and they run back to the other believers for a worship prayer service which, by the way, they all prayed and quoted Psalm 2. They knew their Bibles. All they had was Old Testament. They knew it. They prayed out loud Psalm 2 together that says, why do the nations rage? And they try to stop God and his son, but God laughs from the heaven. That's the passage they quoted. And they said it's a privilege to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. But then look what they say in verse 27. For truly against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you appointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. Real people made real choices to do something heinous. Watch what he says next. To do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. No sinful act ever catches God by surprise or can stop his sovereign plan, including the things that happen to us. So don't make the mistake of thinking, well, I guess that's the only, the Bible talks about that in reference to Jesus because that we needed that for salvation. But the stuff that's happened to me in my past, what happened to me in my family or what, what has happened to me, it doesn't fit that category. Yeah, it does. Joseph, Genesis 37 to 50, 17 years old, Some of you I know come from a dysfunctional family, a broken family, people that should have protected you, nurtured you, encouraged you, abused you in ways that you still live with a limp and struggle to get over what they said or what they did. My heart goes out to you. But the Bible shows situations like that as well. Joseph was 17 and his brothers hated him so much that they sold him. Can you imagine being sold into slavery and thrown onto the backs of camels with people you don't even speak their language. They're Midianites. And drug off to Egypt and sold on a... Your brothers did this. And then, 20 or so years later, when his brothers are in the land and need food and God has risen Joseph to number two in power... He looked at his brothers and he did not say, Genesis 50, verse 20. He did not say, don't worry about it, guys. It had to happen. God made you do that because he needed me here. Nope. You meant it for evil. They did. Two of my favorite words coming next. Does anybody know it? Oh, say it again. Say it like you mean it. But God meant it for evil. Good. Now don't make my mistake here. The Bible doesn't teach whatever happens to you is good. It teaches that God can 
use it for good. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, beginning of verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good. It doesn't say all things are good. Abuse is not good. Betrayal is not good. All things work together for good. To just anybody? Oh, no. To those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, these he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, here's what I want you to get. That's a very popular Bible verse, Romans 8, 28. You should never quote it without 29. Because verse 29 gives us the definition of good. Anything that conforms you and makes you more like Jesus. We tend to, we tend to think good is something that would be pleasant. Good is something that would be favorable. Good is something that would promote me. Good would, is something that would be easy and comfortable. The Bible's definition of what's good for us is whatever makes us more like Christ. Did Christ suffer? Was he misunderstood? Did anything unjust happen to him? We're his children. We're Christ, the word Christian means little Christ. Anything that makes you more like Christ. And that's why Paul goes on to say then, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. He puts it in the past tense. It hadn't even happened yet. But here's how this works. God is gonna finish what he started in you. It's as good as done. And when you understand that, oh, God is working behind the scenes doing something so much bigger than just what I see in my circumstances, that's why then Paul can say, oh, my goodness, if this is the case, if this is what is true, what then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? And you might say, how do I know God's for me, Pastor Brad? The mistake we make is we tend to examine present circumstances and maybe even my, my whole life. Does it seem like God has been for me? I don't feel like God is for me. Really bad things have happened. It doesn't seem fair. That's not where you look, my friend. Listen to what Paul does next. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You look back to Calvary. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? He'll give you everything you need to go through whatever you're going through. And he's making you more like Christ and you don't, you don't question his love based on right now. Oh my goodness, if he would give his son, I know he loves me, oh my goodness, if he, would, if he would turn into the hands of brutal men and women, his beloved son with whom he'd had eternal fellowship and oneness. He did that for me? For me? I'm unworthy. He did it for me? I know he loves me. I know he loves me. I know he loves me. So here's my question for each of us. When your rights, and that's hard for us, when your rights, what you think your rights are, or your beliefs, or your freedoms get treaded on here in America, and you feel abused, 
Do you trust in the wisdom and goodness and sovereignty of God the way Daniel did? And can we agree with Daniel that God is still on his throne and God is in control of who is in control even when it's wicked people? Even as America turns more and more into Babylon. God has us here for a purpose. He's raised us up for such a time as this. Stop wishing for a more agrarian culture. Stop wishing for more of the 50s. We get to be his people today, right now, towards the end. And he's with us. He's for us. And we don't have to be the majority. God has, through all of history, delighted in doing amazing things through weakness and the minority. And so I would love for us to be a church family. I just sense that more Christians are gonna continue down this path of politics and anger and rhetoric and hate and social media. Oh, I plead with you, let's be the church family that does not do that. Let's be Christians who refuse to fall into the mindset of gloom and doom And remember, God is sovereign. Let's agree that regardless of your political preferences, and I hope you have them, that all of us would step outside of our political preference camp and agree and link arms together that no politician will ever solve our biggest problem. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the hope and the answer for America and our world. Let's be those that almost like a fresh wind of air come into a conversation at work or the neighborhood or online and just come sweeping in. And people may fire something back like, are you an idiot? Whatever. Yeah, I'll be a fool for Christ. I will be a fool for Christ. And the simplicity and power of the gospel. There is not power in politics. There is power in the gospel. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul said, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Let's be the church that keeps the main thing the main thing. Let's be the church that loves each other right here, start here, and then pushes outside the walls and loves our enemies and loves people very different than us. As we close, I wanna ask you to bow your head and I want you to personalize this. I want you to think about where you are today. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand, but if I was to ask for a show of hands, I do believe most of us would lift our hands if I said, right now, are you facing something that if you're not careful, it shakes your faith as to whether or not God's in control. Right now, you're facing something that is confusing, it's painful, it's unjust. I know mine would go up. Maybe it's a family struggle, a financial battle, a personal conflict, a painful injustice, a deep sorrow. Whatever your trouble is, Daniel can help us to remember God is in control of who's in control and he's with us. He's with us. Would you right now be willing to reaffirm your faith in God and tell him 
God, I'll trust you even in the dark, even when it doesn't make sense. And I want you to fill me with love, your love. Spread it abroad in my heart. I don't want to be filled with fear that leads to hate. Fill me with your love. Oh, God, would you make us, our church family, those people who stand out as different, not because of how gifted we are, not because of facilities, not because of amazing programs, because of love. May we be those over the next decade and beyond that people are just like, oh my goodness, that is a church of love. They love you even if you are so different. They love you even if you hate them, if you use them, if you revile them. Oh, fill us with your spirit that we might lift up Jesus right now in America. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.